Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe in India. And Yay. this is Speaking of Race. <laughs> oh, they're really excited that I'm in India. My cultural anthropologist self is being like, ugh, why do we keep talking about all of these dead white guys? And we're going to do it again today. Wait, wait a second, Joe. History is important. So what Just are we going to talk about today? Well, so we talked about the non-existence of racial concepts before the 1500s and the gradual building up of sort of general categories of race in the 1600s with Bernier and those guys. And then we talked about how Linnaeus and Buffon duked it out in the mid-1700s. And today, are we really going to play the blame game again? Okay, I think today we actually get to blame people for all the conflict behind the modern race concept. Yay, casting blame! No, 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 no. Eric, you're not going to like who it is. What? Uh, why not? Because it's Immanuel Kant. <gasps> Kant? It can't be. You don't mean Immanuel Kant in the 18th century, do you? Yes. Yep. But not Immanuel Kant, the famous philosopher who championed notions like the categorical imperative that universalizes all morality. Uh, yeah, I'm afraid so. Not the Immanuel Kant that is taught in every philosophy class as among the most important thinkers who's ever lived in a foundation of Western philosophy and the Enlightenment, but also an important thinker on the concept of the rights of humankind who argued that humans should always be treated as ends, not just means. And the Stop showing off. I get it. We have to talk about this guy because he was super important, right? His philosophical concepts are taught in every philosophy department in the world, but there's something else at stake here. And that's because we talk about the Enlightenment as this turning point in world history on so many different fronts, philosophy, economics, political theory, the U.S. becomes the first nation in the world founded upon some of those ideas, some of those ideas belonging to Immanuel Kant. And when we talk about science as objective way of knowing based on evidence and reason, we're talking about ideas that Enlightenment philosophers like Kant formulated. But there's a big problem. We don't teach what they thought about race at all. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I actually taught college philosophy classes. I even did my PhD at one of the best philosophy programs in the whole world. Do you know the number of times that we talked about the connection between enlightenment, philosophy, and race concepts? How many? It was the number zero. We talked about it zero <laughs> times. <laughs> it, it, it's disappointing to me that we talk about the foundations of Western civilization as being based on these enlightenment values while at the same time we ignore the fact that these same natural historians and philosophers were firming up and developing the concept of race that we're using today. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's not too much of a stretch to state that modern scientific theory and methods really wouldn't exist without the study of race and vice versa. Yeah, that's not a stretch at all. In fact, I think we can say that modern science really cuts its teeth on racial science, and yet we rarely discuss that. If we did talk about it more, if we knew the real history of the Enlightenment and race within the Enlightenment, it would be easier to explain some of the things going on in the present. Like what? Do you remember what Iowa Congressman Steve King said on TV during the Republican convention in 2016? Ooh, can we play the clip? This whole white people business, though, does get a little tired, Charlie. I mean, I'd ask you to go back through history and figure out where are these contributions that have been made by these other categories of people that you're talking about? If, that what, where did any other subgroup of people contribute more to civilization? Wow. But wait, there's more. He even defended these remarks on Chris Cuomo's show on CNN later. You wrote that Wilders understands that culture and demographics are our destiny. We cannot restore our civilization with somebody else's 
babies. What did you mean? Well, of course, I meant exactly what I said, as it always is the case, Chris. And to expand on that a little further, um, I've, I've been to Europe and I've spoken on this issue. And I've said the same thing as far as 10 years ago uh, to the German people and to any population of people that is a declining population that doesn't, isn't willing to have enough babies to reproduce themselves. And I've said to them, you cannot rebuild your civilization with somebody else's babies. You've got to keep your birth rate up and that you need to teach your children your values. And in doing so, then you can grow your population and you can strengthen your culture. You can strengthen your way of life. Scarier than the actual Stephen King's writings. Very scary. Actually, this is really serious stuff. And I think that what we're talking about today is relevant today. So hopefully by the end of today's episode, we'll have a clearer understanding of how Europeans became thought of as this kind of ideal race, the race of people to which all other races should aspire, or if races are fixed, the group that should be allowed to set the rules for all the other races. So today we have to talk about one of the major figures in, quote, Western civilization, whatever that is, who also happened to be one of the major figures in race science, Immanuel Kant. And then we can talk about some people who reacted to or expanded upon Kant's ideas. I guess we can't put it off anymore. <laughs> that won't be the last of our Kant puns, I'm sure of it. He was born in 1724 in... Königsberg. Prussia. It was Prussia at the time, then Germany, then Poland. Now it's... Kaliningrad. Russia. And of course, we usually think of Kant as a philosopher of metaphysics or epistemology or maybe ethics. But he spent most of his career teaching what he called anthropology the study of humans. And he was one of the first people to do it. And I think the very first to call it that. So his anthropology courses were the most popular of any that he taught. And in fact, the work that he's most well known for is Three Critiques. That wasn't written until quite late in his career. Kant began to give us an idea of how he was thinking about human difference even before he was teaching his anthropology courses back in 1764 in his work called The Observations and Feeling of the Beautiful and Sublime. He wrote that when he was putting together a course on the philosophy of ascetics. He was interested in finding universals, traits that all people shared. So in this book, he argues that people have a mix of appreciation for the beautiful and for the sublime. These were what he referred to as the so-called finer feelings. In this, he said that different groups of people have different mixtures of these finer feelings. So Italians and French, for instance, are more interested in the beautiful than the sublime, whereas the English and the Japanese are more interested in the noble and principled sublime than the beautiful. And Germans, like Kant, are perfectly balanced between the two. Of course. Arabs and Spanish are into the terrifying sublime more than the beautiful. Dutch are too pragmatic and greedy to have any finer feelings. <laughs> Kant also thought that the Native Americans had some sense of the sublime, but not of beauty. And of course, people from India and Africa, by contrast with these other groups, had, according to him, only the most grotesque sense of aesthetics and basically no sense of what Europeans would call beautiful. And so to make a long story short, Kant's saying that aesthetics must be somewhat hardwired into humanity. And if you don't have aesthetics, or at least a Western sense of aesthetics, there must be something wrong with you. And that typically, in his view, mapped onto browner-skinned people. So is it fair to say that, I don't know, though we think of Kant as trying to define universal aesthetics, and we think of his arguments about aesthetics as really defining what beauty means for all people, but is it fair to say that it seems like what he really meant 
were just what European gentlemen thought of as aesthetic? That's pretty much what he's saying there, yeah. And he didn't stop with that. By the time he was retired from university teaching and wrote his book, Anthropology from a Pragmatic Point of View, his views on human difference had kind of sharpened. Traits don't blend, said Kant, and the traits of a child show that someone in the child's lineage somewhere had possessed that trait. So you can't get brown hair if you have a blonde father and a black-haired mother. Rather, you have to have a brown-haired individual somewhere back in your lineage. And these are types that Kant said would always breed true. And when you have these characteristics breeding true in a lineage like this, this is what he defined ultimately as races in the natural world. This is about 100 years before Mendel here. So we're not talking about genes, but it's clear that Kant is grounding his anthropology in what we would think of today as a notion of biological difference. And of course, this was part of his project to build biological science as a whole. So I think we have to slow down and unpack this for people for just a second, because I think it's really significant. There's a philosopher at Mississippi State just down the road named Sally Hatch Gray, who in, in 2012 wrote this article arguing that Kant had to formulate his theory of aesthetics in this particular way. It's partly because Kant was trying to write philosophical arguments that would allow him to make certain mental categories universal. These are the very things that we teach in philosophy classes about Kant. But at the same time, he was trying to make hard delineations about human race. So Kant wanted to ground the science of humanity and human thinking in natural law, but he did it by making racial categories essential, natural, fixed. And he fixated primarily on skin color and hair type, the same features that are used to define racial groups today as being the most important marks that would distinguish his racial groups too. Even in essays like his 1775 titled On Different Races of Man, Kant thought something almost like Hippocrates did thousands and thousands of years earlier which was that skin color indicated a relationship with the four universal qualities of hotness, coldness, dryness, and dampness that created the earth, air, fire, water elements and the blood phlegm, yellow bile, black bile, humoral system. He thought there was an initial stem species of humans, which would have been, of course, white-skinned and dark-haired and living, quote, in the most happy mixture of the colder and the hotter regions. Four races came from that original stock, which he called the race of whites, the Hunnish race, the Negro race, and the Hinduish race. Kant had these views that could either be a total throwback to something centuries earlier, but also could be a kind of blending of Linnaeus and Buffon from our last episode. So why are we arguing that this is so important again? Joe, it's Immanuel Kant. That's yeah. basically why, though we should tell the whole story. Kant's work was widely read in his time as well as today, both his anthropology and his philosophy. And he ended up getting into a couple of disagreements with other prominent figures. And that had the impact essentially of spreading his ideas even wider. He also had very important intellectual contact with someone who is frequently referred to as the father of scientific race, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach. So Kant was popular even in his day. And of course, he's basically the cornerstone of modern philosophy today. But that doesn't mean that everybody agreed with him. One of the first fights that he had, public fights, was with one of his own students. So Johann Gottfried Herder studied with Kant at Königsberg in the early 1760s. This is when Kant was still working on his early aesthetics stuff. 
Herder became a pastor, and in fact, he also published on aesthetics. Herder basically thought that Kant was wrong, mostly because Kant overemphasized the biological fixity of human types and left out any reference to what we would now call culture. So in 1772, Herder writes his treatise on the origins of language. And two years later, he follows that up with a book called This Too, A Philosophy of History for the Formation of Humanity. And between those two books, Herder argues that people are constantly changing and immigrating, moving all around. So the most important stuff that defines people wasn't anything natural or fixed or even rational like Kant wanted, but creativity and novelty, which really transcends any inborn human categories. I think what's interesting is that Herder also became associated with the famous German um, romantic thinker Goethe, and that was after he was a student of Kant's, which made Herder kind of a villain in Kant's intellectual world because he lined up with Goethe so often. Sort of like Robin stabbing Batman in the back, but with Wagner in the background. (laughs) So how did Kant react? Well, you know that, that 1775 essay, The Different Races of Man, that you just talked about a second ago? That's the response. That's how angry Kant was. Oh. So Kant sort of doubled down on the hardness of race? Yeah, it, it would be like if Robin was stabbing Batman, but Batman was an old, dotty, racist philosopher. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> he also got into a little bit of a dust-up with a very famous travel writer and essayist and publisher from that time period, Georg Forster, who had accompanied his father on Cook's voyages and had actually seen a lot of the people that all of these race writers were writing about. When Forster got back in some of his pieces, he pointed out problems that Kant had with his descriptions of the different groups, and he also took issue with ranking any groups as superior to the others. In one of his pieces, Forster said, all peoples of the earth have equal claims to my goodwill. So here's Kant, the armchair philosopher, getting slammed by a guy who actually has done a fair amount of traveling and actually encountered the people of other skin colors that Kant's writing about and has concluded that they have basically the same worth. And this came after Kant was criticized by a former student for being too devoted to racial essentialism. Is this why we don't talk about him and race anymore at all? Did his hard racial categories just like not matter? Ooh, now I get to say no. And by no... I mean that Kant's anthropological views were actually really influential. It turns out that Kant's race work rubbed off on somebody that's often called the father of physical anthropology. And that's why we get Johann Friedrich Blumenbach. That's what I was taught when I was coming up, that Blumenbach was my intellectual uh, great-grandfather in in Europe. If you pick up a text on the history of anthropology going back before Boaz, you find reference to Blumenbach. We tend to think of Kant as the constructor of mental categories and moral imperatives. And we forget about his contribution to racial science, or at least the philosophers have until the last 20 or 30 years. Whereas Blumenbach is only thought of as a race scientist today, although he was incredibly influential as a comparative anatomist, a natural historian, making arguments against preformation theory. And so he was a university museum curator, and he was a very popular professor, very widely published and written in a variety of disciplines, not just in the ideas about race. He even gave the scientific name to a newly discovered woolly mammoth specimen. He was born in Gotha, Germany in 1752. 
His mother and father were academics, and he was a child prodigy in literature and natural history. He studied medicine at Jena and then at Göttingen, where he took his medical degree after he turned in his dissertation in 1775. He wrote his dissertation right in the middle of the controversy between Kant and Herder, and he called it on the natural variety of mankind. Actually, he didn't. He wrote it in Latin, but that's the English translation. And each of his follow-up editions of De Generis made contributions to thinking about the science of race. In his original dissertation, in the first edition, he adopted Linnaeus's four-part division, what he says is Linnaeus allotted four classes of inhabitants to the four quarters of the globe, respectively. But Blumenbach doesn't name the races like Linnaeus does or use the Latin term for race. He continues the use of the term variety. He just numbers them like Bernier did way back in 1684. Remember, Bernier was the French guy from a couple episodes ago who traveled through the Mughal Empire and he proposed these four groupings of people that he wrote about in this note to the Salonniere and published anonymously and all that intrigue and stuff. We always talk about him in the history of race because he was the first one to use the actual word race to describe human groups. But back then we were still at the point where race was kind of a fuzzy concept and he really didn't mean it in the biological sense as it was beginning to mean by this time. Blumenbach had his varieties numbered as did Bernier, and his first three varieties were exactly the same as Bernier's. He divided them up using geographic boundaries. They were different than Kant's designations of racial groups. And like Kant, Blumenbach believed that Europe contained the light-skinned originals of the planet, and he gives the second spot to Asia, the third to Africa, and the fourth to America. Unlike Bernier, he doesn't split off the laps into their own racial group. After dividing people up along the geographic lines, Blumenbach then goes on to describe the anatomical and some behavioral variations between groups. He emphasizes that his classification system is arbitrary, although he says that his is the best to be preferred, and that the groups that he creates are invariably grading into one another. He also explicitly denies that there's any kind of hierarchical ranking of these varieties which directly contradicted much of what Kant had to say about the races and their various worth. Even more so, some of the Enlightenment thinkers who were trying to revive polygenism, like the French philosopher Voltaire. At one point, Blumenbach mocked Voltaire by saying, the Ethiopian variety, mainly because it is so different in color from our own, has induced many to consider it as its own species, as does the witty but badly instructed in physiology Voltaire. Some even say Voltaire was Blumenbach's public enemy number one. That's pretty harsh, right? <laughs> yeah. So Blumenbach publishes the second edition of his work, Degeneres, uh, The Natural Variety of Mankind, in 1781. He was still just 29 years old. And in this edition, Whoa. he made this big change. He actually changed to five, the varieties of humans. And that's really what we still know him for, the five varieties of humans. He added on his fifth group after reading about Captain Cook's voyages in the Pacific, and he decided to split off Indian Ocean Islanders, Pacific Islanders, and Australians as their own variety. He did not call them races, though. He replaces the numbers in DeGeneres with names for races in a 1793 article. And here's what he says, quote, adopting, as I think is conformable to nature, five races of the human species, 
And then he gives us their names. One, the Caucasian. Two, the Mongolian. Three, the Malay. Four, the Ethiopian. And five, the American. He actually doesn't come up with Caucasian, although most books say that he does. That word was already coined a couple of years earlier. We could do a whole episode on that fantastic term Caucasian and how it came to be in its constant misuse even in the present. Yeah, we could, but we really don't want to do that right now because we're already running (laughs) long. So in the third and final edition of Blumenbach's Degenerous, Ellen? No, the other one, (laughs) which came out in 1795. This one turned out to be the most influential work for 19th century race scholars for a few different reasons. Between 1775 and 1795, Blumenbach had been collecting human skulls in the museum that he was associated with, and he began to put together a significant skull collection. It was one of the most notable skull collections of humans from its time. While it was good at its time, it was much smaller than what Samuel Morton, who we talked about way back when we began talking about monogenism and polygenism, he created a much larger collection in the middle of the 19th century. Anyway, this is the first edition, in other words, the third edition of Degenerus that has full detailed drawings from his skull collection in it. In a table in a fold-out figure, he renders five type specimen drawings, one that's supposed to represent each of the five races. You'll see a lot of weird stuff published out there, not just online, but also in print, that other scholars have put out about Blumenbach trying to use this five skulls as some sort of ranking device for the human races. These skulls are not labeled Caucasian, African, American, Asian, etc. He labels, for instance, the middle one, Femini Georgiani, a woman from the southern slope of the Caucasus Mountains in the country of Georgia. So this could be where we get into measuring skeletal features in order to determine racial characteristics. Yeah, but that probably actually happened around 15 years earlier. And again, it comes back to Kant. We can't get rid of him. I was going to make that joke. Kant originally wrote about aesthetics, right? This project of, of figuring out why certain things were good looking. And this wasn't just sort of Kant's private obsession. It was really an international question that artists and others were talking about in the mid 1700s all over the world. And Blumenbach's skull collection gets implicated in this process. But it's Dutch physician Petrus Camper who also ends up having an unintentionally important role in the development of racial theory when all he wanted to do was just come up with an index to help in his anatomical drawing. Petrus Camper was a physician, and he had a bit of a reputation for being an eccentric. Along with working on human patients in the 1760s, he dissected eight orangutans, an elephant, (laughs) and a rhinoceros, all from the Dutch East Indies, which is now, I think, Indonesia. And he drew basically everything that he found. He was actually an excellent technical drawer and was even the main artist depicting some of the first fossils of prehistoric marine creatures like mosasaurs. In 1770, Camper hosted a set of lectures in Leiden. Leiden in the Netherlands was one of the most influential medical schools in Europe at the time. And he did sets of anatomical drawings using a technique that he called the facial angle. Rumor has it he developed that along the way when he was trying to demonstrate the paintings of the nativity were wrong because they made everyone look like a European. 
Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, he was really big into trying to show how you could actually change a great deal about the appearances of human faces based on just a few alterations. Like you could show the difference between a child and an older person based on how much their chin jutted out. And that was what the facial angle was really measuring. Most human faces, in fact, are slanted out from about 70 to 80 degrees. So not quite straight up and down. Ancient Greek statues came closest to 80 or even 90 degrees, which would be almost totally straight up and down. But totally straight up and down would be abnormal, as Camper himself pointed out. So the problem was the way that he displayed all of these drawing instructions. In his lectures, given over two different courses... And then in the book, printed out from those lectures, Camper displayed what seemed like a progressive series of illustrations of the skulls, which were at the top part of the drawing, and then faces supposedly matching those skulls, which were below. And he oriented the series from the most slanted to the least slanted, so the ones with the steepest facial angle to the ones that had the most straight up and down facial angle. On the most slanted end, way off to the left, He depicted an orangutan's skull above and then the orangutan's face below. It was probably one that he had dissected. On the least slanted facial angle of the series, that's the one furthest to the right, he depicted a Greek statue and he imagined what its skull might look like. But just to the right of the orangutans, so on the left side of the drawing, but to the right of the orangutans, he had people that he labeled Moors, which probably meant Muslims from Spain or North Africa. And then next to that, he had a skull that he labeled the Kalmuks. And that's probably the skull that he had of an Oirat male, one of the former migratory people living on the Central Asian steppe. Interestingly, this is the skull that Camper considered the ugliest of the whole series. And then he had several other faces and skulls. He didn't identify those in his drawings, but they were closer to that 90-degree ancient Greek drawing and that skull. And so people took them to be Europeans even though he doesn't explicitly label them that. Not surprisingly, this figure is what got taken up into the literature of the time and used to try and show that Africans were lower down on some sort of scale, like the scale of being from Aristotle of facial angles, and Europeans were higher up, so Africans were closer to the orangutans. But Camper himself did not like this reading. We know that it was a popular reading, however. In fact, we still say that that's what Camper meant to do today. So let me read you a passage. This is from Patricia Farah's Science of 4,000-Year History, which is like the only academic history of science book that I've ever seen on the shelves of an airport Barnes & Noble. So I think I can count it as a widely held belief about Camper. All right, so here's the quote. She said, by examining skulls, Camper measured an angle at which faces slope back. After some geometrical adjustments, he ranked them in a continuous line from apes on the left through Africans and Asians, up to living Europeans, and finishing with a statue of Apollo on the right. Although apparently mathematical, the impression reinforced by grid lines, the scale is an aesthetic one, grading humans by the relative distance from two unrealizable extremes, the grotesque primate and the Greek god. Though arbitrary geometric ranking, Camper stamped scientific credibility onto Aristotle's great chain of being. Camper's quantified classification scheme made racial prejudice scientifically respectable, even though Camper had no no intention to do that. In fact, only two years after his aesthetics lectures where he displayed these drawings, Camper felt compelled to write a strongly worded 
rebuttal, an essay entitled On the Origin and Color of Blacks. In that essay, Petrus Camper said explicitly, quote, I have shown through physical examination of our body and especially of our skin that there is not any reason why we should not consider the race of Moors to be descended just like ours from Adam. Be Adam created black, brown, tanned, or white, his descendants, as soon as they spread out over the surface of the earth, necessarily had to change in color and shape according to how the country, the particular foods and illnesses differed. In many, an accidental variation was passed through heredity as we still see happen daily, end quote. So Camper didn't think that skin color or skull shape was permanent or really even that indicative of something significant. It's the opposite of Kant, in other words. But it was too little too late. Even modern historians assume that Camper was just another one of those race science guys trying to show how Europeans like himself were the best and that other groups were worse. Blumenbach got misrepresented in pretty much the same way. You have to admit that Camper's facial angle drawings hinted at a racial hierarchy, even if it wasn't explicit and it wasn't intended by him. Blumenbach, by contrast, went so far as to intentionally arrange his skull drawings in a straight line without any ranking, with the European skull in the middle of the group to show that there was a range of variation that existed among humans. This, along with his discussion of skin color gradients when he's discussing the different varieties, suggests to me that Blumenbach thought human physiological variation was distributed in a Klein, a geographic gradient in a characteristic. That's amazing. So you mentioned the word Klein. That's an anticipation of what anti-racist thinkers like Frank Livingston would use to combat race science in the 1960s. That's amazing. Exactly. But instead of people, you know, taking that from Blumenbach's work, what they see is his classification scheme as perfecting the scheme that was put into place initially by Kant. He gets cast as very racist in many treatments of his work. So, Kant wins? Well, you can't win all of them. We knew that was coming. Hold on, guys. I feel like we keep doing this thing where we're like, hey, this person's ideas were sort of racist, but not really. But other people have said they're racist. And so, if that's true, how's anyone supposed to say for sure who's to blame for what? Or even when someone's ideas are important? Like, if I were a listener right now, I feel like I'd be getting either frustrated or confused. I think that we're the only people who can tell you that. Uh, No. One of the things that matters that has been repeated in a couple of these episodes is that it it really matters who interprets and translates your work. We learned that about Linnaeus and how his descriptors were being translated from the Latin. Blumenbach similarly wrote in Latin in the late 1700s, but by 1865, there was a particularly bad English translation of his third edition work, which was in widespread use in the English-speaking world, and it made it very easy to assume that he was working from a racist perspective because of the way it had been translated, especially the critical parts about the physical differences between the races. So who's doing the English translating, and why are they twisting the original stuff? Well, we're way long already, so we can talk about that on a later episode. But let's be clear about this. Kant wasn't being twisted. Kant seems to be one of the first people that we can point to and say directly, aha, there's scientific racism. It's Kant's fault. 
It can't be. It can't be. Jinx. Yes. Jinxed half a world away. That was beautiful. But in our last episode, when we were talking about the first half of this century, the 18th century, it was Linnaeus that we settled on as the main perpetrator, creating these categories that had these natural seeming personalities and proclivities, not just different looks. Since Linnaeus and Kant were more or less contemporaries, they must have been aware of each other's work. And so I went and looked around about this a little bit, and I found one pretty well-known history of science who states that Kant took up the mantle where Linnaeus left off. Yeah, that's one interpretation, but it's very clear that Kant was much more of a Buffonian than uh, Linnaean in his approach and terminology. And he was embracing Buffon in his attempt to build natural history up into a science Remember, Kant considered physics to be the only legitimate science, Newtonian physics. And so he's trying to bring this life science along into something more closely resembling that. And just Linnaeus's hardcore tabular approach to classification wasn't going to do it. And not only was he responsible for using Buffon's approach then to natural history, he also prevailed on Blumenbach to adopt Buffon's terms like race and the descriptive patterns of the different groups. So we can't really blame Buffon. And we can kind of blame Linnaeus, but it seems like it's really Kant. And does that mean that Kant's whole view of civilization, the, the very best of what humans have to offer, the heart of the Enlightenment project, is that whole thing just rooted in white supremacy? Well, you know, that's certainly one way to look at it. So when Steve King says his racist nonsense, he's pulling not only from modern white supremacists like Richard Spencer, but right from the heart of the Enlightenment project. The Enlightenment wasn't really an extension of the rights of man guaranteed by self-evident truths that all men are created equal to all people, but rather modern social and political philosophy is racist right from the get-go in the Enlightenment. They should teach that in the philosophy and political science classes. I, I think their student evaluations would not be so great if they did. But we still need to talk about how these ideas made their way into the U.S. And to do that, we still have at least one last piece of this century to discuss. So, on part three of this segment of the Enlightenment, we're stretching this out we were, as long as we can. Four, four. We really thought it was going to be just like one episode. We did. It's now becoming three. So much stuff. All right, so in part three of this segment, the never-ending segment on the Enlightenment, we're going to show how Scotland became another hotbed of racial thought in the late 1700s. And Scotland is important because it influenced some people that you may have heard of. Philosopher David Hume, economist Adam Smith, and that up-and-coming scientist-slash-politician, a guy named Benjamin Franklin. Bum, bum, and at some point, I'm going to do some on-location stuff here in India, too, about, as I mentioned a moment ago, how British colonialism essentially transposed some of the very ideas that we're talking about right today onto Indian society in a process that ultimately resulted in the scientific racialization of the caste system. Until then, I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Thanks so much for listening. 